Now the story still doesn't stop. Missionary work never does. The converted cannot help but want to share what's happened to them with other people. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 20. King, it's King Lamoni that desires that Ammon should go with him to the land of Nephi, that he might show him unto his father. This is not show and tell. Yeah, I want to show you, but I really want to tell him about what experiences we've just had. This isn't Ammon saying, okay, on to the next missionary opportunity. This is Lamoni saying, you've got to share this with other people. Everybody needs to know. Let's go to my father who is king over all the land. Now, this is a missionary's dream and textbook missionary experience. New converts make the best missionaries, right? New member referrals. He's getting the ultimate one. And yet, what's he say in verse 2? I can't, Lamoni. The voice of the Lord says, Thou shalt not go up to the land of Nephi, for behold, the king will seek thy life. Instead, go to the land of Madoni, for behold, thy brother Aaron and also Mulekai and Amma are in prison. Now, if it were me, as Ammon, I'd be devastated. I'd probably be thinking about Aaron going, that punk can't keep himself out of prison. Do you understand what you're doing to my mission? I just converted one Lamanite village and I'm ready to go on and convert the next. But no, you couldn't keep yourself out of jail. And now I got to go back and babysit. I got to bring you out when I should be doing my mission. That's what I was called to do. Now, do you remember when we talked about Alma and Amulek? And the time that they tarried together at Amulek's. And I wondered if Alma was probably feeling anxious. Like, ah, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be teaching the people. But what happened for Amulek particularly during that time of tarrying was essential for his later missionary work. I wonder if there's a similar lesson being taught here. Now, I had incredible companions in the mission field. All of them were amazing. Not a black sheep in the lot. But you do hear horror stories of companions that struggle. Or even just companions through no fault of their own are sick or are struggling with other things and can't go out and work the way that they, had, they or you had hoped for. I didn't get that when I was a missionary. As a greenie, I was so on fire, zealous, just wanted to get things done. My second companion got dengue fever. And I had no idea what it was, but I'm like, well, you're not dead yet. And I can teach by myself, but I have to have a companion. So we got these appointments. Just come. You can sleep. You're going to sleep at home in the apartment. Why don't you just sleep on their couch or something? And that way I can at least keep teaching the gospel. And we were all clueless. He, he came. So this poor missionary suffering from dengue fever, and he's just kind of passed out on the couch. And I'm like, awesome. I don't even have to share the lesson this time. I can just teach the whole thing myself. I was so gung-ho, just laser-focused, like, oh, companions? No, they're just here to help me with my mission. When God has a different lesson for Ammon, and one that I needed, when I was young too. You see, Ammon, this is not an interruption of your mission. It's not Aaron's fault he's in prison. Believe me, you'll see more of his story once you get back with him. And in fact, if you want to consider this an interruption of your mission, it's to help end the interruption of Aaron's. You see, you help a missionary get up and running, then you have helped all the people that they will eventually teach as well. See, when I taught at the MTC, sometimes I'd get frustrated with missionaries that thought, oh, I'm good. I don't need to practice very sincerely. I've practiced this, teaching this lesson to my companion like for three weeks now. And, and he d agrees to be baptized after every time. I mean, I'm amazing. And sometimes I'd say, elders and sisters, do you realize that this practice lesson might be realer than you recognize? You might have no idea 
what questions or struggles, what lack of testimony your own companion may be dealing with. And if you can teach these same lessons to them, not as some kind of a practice, but as a real opportunity to strengthen faith, to build testimony, then this just might be the most important lesson you ever teach. Because you're converting a converter. You're sharing with a sharer. You're being a missionary to a missionary. Ammon, go help your brother. Pause your mission so he can unpause his. And in reality, this is no pause of your mission at all, Ammon. This is your mission. Recently, I was asked to give a Zoom fireside, or a Zoom mission conference, I should say, by a friend of mine who's serving as a mission president. And as all these missionaries, elders and sisters, were in lockdown, quarantined in their apartments, I just felt very strongly the reality of this principle from Alma chapter 20, that the so-called interruption of their mission labor because of coronavirus was not an interruption of their mission. It was their mission. These were things that the Lord needed them to learn. And so don't think that this is getting in the way of what I'm here for. I think that's what causes most frustration between companions. And the same can be said about families. That this is getting in the way of what I intended things to be, what I pictured, what I envisioned my life to be like. This isn't getting in the way of your family. This is your family. This isn't getting in the way of your calling. This is your calling. This isn't ruining your mission. It is your mission. Trust that and live it and live it well. I'm grateful that Ammon was better than I would have been. He immediately accepts that and turns to Lamoni and says in three, can't come, sorry. My brother and brethren are in prison at Adonai and I've got to go to deliver them. Now Lamoni's response is amazing. It's so good that Ammon told him that this is what has to happen because Lamoni offers to join him. He says, I know in the strength of the Lord thou canst do all things. I know you don't need my help. You didn't need my armies to defend you. You don't need my help to free your brethren. But can I please come? I will go with thee to the land of Madonai. For the king of the land of Madonai, whose name is Antiomno, is a friend of mine. I'll flatter the king. He'll cast your brethren out of prison. I, I can totally help. If that's your mission, then I want it to be my mission too. I thought our mission was to teach the gospel. And so you taught it to me, and now I wanted you to go teach it to my dad. But if your mission is also freeing people in bondage, hmm, that all kind of sounds like the same thing, huh? Mm-hmm. Then let's, if you're going to go free your brother, can I go free him with you? I actually might be able to be of help to you. And that's exactly what he was. It's like, I trust in God's power. I have faith in you and him, but I also have some works that I can contribute. And with Lamoni's combination of faith and works, it's amazing what takes place. Exactly what Ammon and the Lord intended all along. He does have one question, though, at the end of four. How did you know this, Ammon? How did you know your brother was in prison? And Ammon says, oh, I didn't, but God did. And that's enough for me. It's amazing to have those kinds of experiences when you are an instrument in the Lord's hands. And you don't know certain things, but God knows those things, and he uses you in spite of your ignorance. It's exactly what happens here. So in verse 6, Lamoni hears this and caused that his servants should make ready his horses and chariots. I love the fact that that's what Ammon used to be doing, and now someone else is. There is a time to serve, and there is a time to teach. Keep them straight and do the right thing at the right time. 
Again, he reiterates the plan in seven. I'll go plead with the king to let your brother out. But on their way, they run into, guess who? The father of King Lamoni. Now, this is interesting. That was their intention from the beginning. Who's our next missionary opportunity? Well, let's go talk to my dad. Ah, we can't. I've got to go help my brother. And the Lord's up there thinking, oh, I can do two for one on this. You do what I want, and it'll end up doing what you want also. Again, this is not an interruption of your mission. I'm actually speeding it up. This is the fastest way for you to come into contact with your potential golden investigator. He doesn't seem so golden yet, though. In verse 9, the father of Lamoni says, What are you doing? Why didn't you come to the feast on that great day when I made a feast unto my sons and unto my people? Did you catch what he just said? It's not just, why didn't you come to my party? It was, why didn't you come to your party? I made a feast for my son's son, and one of my guests of honor wasn't there. Now I'm starting to put two and two together. What are you doing with this Nephite, one of the children of a liar? Now, Lamoni explains, Dad, Dad, I don't want to offend you. I know you were trying to give me something. Well, I was in the middle of receiving something so far beyond anything you could offer me. I know you were trying to throw a party to build me up. Well, in that moment, God had brought me down and my kingship looked like nothing compared to that of the king of kings. Oh, believe me, Father, there was a celebration to be had, but very different than the one you had in mind. I know you meant to honor me, but can we together honor God? Thank you for the feast I missed, but I'm so grateful for the feast that God laid before me. Verse 12, he told him all the cause of his tearing. He explained all of that. And 13, dad is livid. His father was angry with him. He said, Lamoni, thou art going to deliver these Nephites who are sons of a liar? He robbed our fathers. Now his children are also come among us that they may by their cunning and their lines deceive us and rob us of our property again. Now for most of my life in reading that verse, I thought, Oh yeah, he's still dredging up those old wounds from Laman and Lemuel. Remember we saw that earlier, that they were wroth and wroth and wroth because they felt they'd been wronged and wronged and wronged. Wronged back in Jerusalem, leaving all of their property. Wronged on the ocean, crossing the sea. Wronged when they got to the promised land, once the Lamanites and Nephites separated and Nephi kept all the good stuff. But I think it's more than that. These are the sons of a liar he robbed our fathers, and now his children are come to rob us. Yes, I think the big picture Nephites versus Lamanites applies here. But I think smaller picture, who's Ammon's dad? Mosiah. And what had happened earlier in Mosiah's reign? Limhi's people. Remember, Mosiah had sent Ammon, a different Ammon, to go find these people. They found Limhi and helped Limhi and all of his people who had been paying the Lamanites one half of all they possessed, helped them find their way back to Zarahemla. Remember, gave wine to the, to the guards, got them drunk, snuck out under cover of darkness. Lamanites went out in hot pursuit of the cash cow that was wandering away and then lost their tracks in the wilderness. This is all still pretty fresh. And I wonder if the king over all the land is still nursing wounds about that group of people that gave us half of all they produced. And now they're back with the Nephites 
the king of the Nephites, your father, has robbed us. And you're here to do more of the same. Now, like we see in verse 13, dad is angry. But there is one other detail in 13 that's important to notice. Dad's reaction is pure anger. What is Lamoni's reaction to dad's reaction? Verse 13, to his astonishment, his father was angry with him. Now, I'm astonished by Lamoni's astonishment. Isn't this exactly what you would expect? What were the options that we saw back? What's on the menu? What are Lamanite kings supposed to do to Nephite visitors? You either kill them or captivate them or imprison them or cast them out. Son, what on earth are you doing? Listen to them, convert to their faith. Those weren't on the list. It's a darn good thing you didn't marry my granddaughter, right? So King Lamoni's father's reaction is exactly what you would have expected. And yet, for his son, Lamoni, this is astonishing. He, wait, he rejected the message? I think this is such a beautiful missionary principle. To have so much faith in your message, and it's truth. To have so much faith in God's power and spirit to convert people. So much faith in the other person that they will be able to see truth once it presents itself. So much faith that any kind of rejection comes as a shock. Something astonishing. I think, sadly, we get so used to slam doors and disinterested non-investigators that the next time somebody rejects us, we just kind of shrug nonchalantly and go, yeah, yeah, you and everybody else. Instead of, what? How could they not accept the gospel? I'm astonished by that slam door. Your companion's like, what are you talking about? It's like the 50th slam door in a row. I know. And this is the 50th time I've been astonished today. Do we have that kind of faith? To be surprised every time someone reacts in a way that wouldn't surprise someone with less faith at all. Well, 14, King Lamoni's father turns to his son and says, you kill him. You are not going to Madonai. You're coming home with me. Lamoni has some guts. Verse 15, he stands up to his dad. And not because he's a habitual peacemaker, right? This is the same guy that would kill his servants over scattered sheep without a second thought. No, now it's, I know that they are just men and holy prophets of the true God. Not just a prophet of a God, like his wife had assumed, but the prophets of the true God, as he now knew. Well, dad, who used to be angry at Ammon, is now angry at his son. He wanted Lamoni to kill Ammon. Now he's ready to kill Lamoni himself. He draws his sword, and 17, so does Ammon. He warns him, you better not slay your son. Now, it would be better if you did than if he killed you. His death would be less of a tragedy than your own because he has repented of his sins. You haven't. Were he to die right now, he'd be saved. Were you to die right now, you would not be. Interesting moment to teach a little missionary lesson, isn't it? But in 18, he continues it. You must forbear. If you should slay thy son, he being an innocent man. I love that he calls him that. This man that had killed so many servants. This man that had been an enemy to Nephites in the past. Oh, no, no, no. He's innocent. His sins were scarlet. They are now white as snow. But any blood you shed from him would cry for vengeance against you. Well, that kind of jolted Lamoni's father into a realization, but his anger is still not gone. 
At first it was directed against Ammon, then it's directed against Lamoni, well now it's just directed back at Ammon. At first it was, son, kill him. Then it was, oh, I'm going to kill you. Now it's fine, I'll just kill him myself. In a weird way, he ends up agreeing with Ammon. You're right, I shouldn't kill him. I should kill you instead. But in verse 20, Ammon withstands his blows and smites the king's arm so he can't use it. I can picture Lamona going, Dad, just be grateful that you still have it connected to the rest of you. This guy has a thing with arms. Yours is just kind of out of order for a moment. I've got a bag back at my palace that suggests what it might have been. But the king drops to his knees in 21 and begs Ammon to spare his life. Now Ammon raises his sword and threatens, I will smite you unless you grant me that my brethren shall be cast out of prison. The king says, fine, fine, I, I fear to lose my life. If you spare me, I'll grant unto you whatever you want, even half the kingdom. I don't know what he would do with the other half if he were dead, but still a pretty good offer. Now Ammon realizes he could have anything he wants. Notice what he asks for. If thou wilt grant that my brethren may be cast out of prison, and also that Lamoni may retain his kingdom, that he be not displeased with him. So it's not just your actions towards him, it's your attitude towards him that needs to change. But grant that he may do according to his own desires, in whatsoever thing he thinketh, then will I spare thee. Otherwise, I'll smite you to the earth. What a selfless prayer. He could have had half the kingdom. Again, I don't think that was much of a sacrifice. Ammon keeps getting kingdoms thrown at him. Here's Lamoni's dad. You can have half mine. Here's Lamoni. Marry my daughter. Here's his own father. Be king in my place. Ah, I don't need any of these kingdoms. I just want to build my father's kingdom. The only kingdom that really matters. But everything he was asking for was for other people. For his brethren for his new friend Lamoni, for Lamoni's people. Now in 26, what strikes the father now? When he saw that Ammon had no desire to destroy him, and even more importantly, when he saw the great love he had for his son Lamoni. It's now his turn to be astonished exceedingly. What did he expect out of Nephites? Hatred, theft, lying, robbing, all of those things. What did he get instead? Just love, great love for his son. I expected enemies. I found friends. I expected hatred. I felt it myself. Instead, I see love. That's the most astonishing and most convincing missionary message we could possibly share. And so he agrees to do exactly what Ammon had requested. In fact, he does him one better. I will let my son retain his kingdom from this time and forever, and I will govern him no more. Then 27, I'll also help get your brethren out of prison, since I am king over all the land, including Madoni. And it's not just that I want them free. I want them free to come unto me to teach me, for I shall greatly desire to see thee. Why? Because the king was greatly astonished at the words which he had spoken, and also at the words which had been spoken by his son Lamoni. Therefore he was desirous to learn them. Now, it sure didn't seem that he was desirous to learn them back when he first heard them, right? And you'd think in the midst of a heated conversation that involved death threats, multiple death threats, that all of those words would have been lost in the shuffle somewhere. But no. Have faith that some of what you've said has stuck. That even words that were initially rejected might linger a little longer. 
in the mind and heart of the person that we shared them with. Some seeds seem to lie dormant for quite a time. They may yet grow. Well, they go on their journey. Lamoni finds favor in the eyes of the king of the land, and Ammon's brethren are freed. 29 describes them a little bit, what they'd gone through. When Ammon saw them, he was exceedingly sorrowful because they'd been naked. Their skins were worn exceedingly because of being bound with strong cords. They'd suffered hunger, thirst, all kinds of afflictions. But as they'd been warned about all of those things and told to be patient in their sufferings, that's exactly what they did. I guess they didn't see that as an interruption of their mission either. That was the good example that they would show forth, just as God had asked them to do. In verse 30, it wasn't their fault. It just happened to be their lot to have fallen into the hands of a more hardened and a more stiff-necked people. Therefore, they would not hearken unto their words. They cast them out. They smote them. They drove them from house to house, from place to place. Which means this must have been oft-repeated mistreatment until they finally got to Madonai and were cast into prison once and for all. Well, not quite. Only until Lamoni and Ammon came. Now here we get to shift gears a little bit. And the camera turns from Ammon to Aaron. And we see what he's been up to. Like we saw in 30, it was his lot to fall into a more hardened people. Well, he had taken the most hard-hearted of them all on directly. In chapter 21, we see Aaron's mission. He goes to a city of the Lamanites called Jerusalem. I wonder about that. On the one hand, you'd think, well, perfect. You name it after the place that the family originally came from. So nostalgic. But I also wonder, these were Lamanites that, remember Laman and Lemuel kept saying, we just want to go back to Jerusalem to get our inheritance. We don't believe it's going to be destroyed because of some so-called wickedness. Dad, you're just being judgmental. I just think it's ironic that the Lamanites have a city named Jerusalem, which may, instead of nostalgia, might be they were never completely able to let it go. Either way, the Lamanites built it with the help of the Amalekites and the Amulonites. Now, we know where Amulon's people came from. He was one of the wicked priests of King Noah, apostate Nephites, Nephite dissenters, thinking there's an easy way to heaven, we can glut on the labors of other people's hands, that there is no law, there's no sin, there's no guilt, there's no shame. You can live however you want, and it's all good. Now, the Amalekites are more of a mystery. There's no record of where this group of people came from. Now, some scholars have suggested that maybe this is the Amlicites. The names are so similar, and even in the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, the, the C and Amlici might have been pronounced with a hard C sound, a K as in Amalekai, and Amalekai and Amalekai are really, really close. It's not just the sound of things, though. With the Amalekites, we see their beginning. They seem to have a significant role in Alma 2 and 3, and then we never hear of them again. And here in Alma 21, we get the Amalekites mentioned as if we were supposed to know them. So there does seem to be some pretty interesting evidence that this might be the same group of people. And if it is, then no wonder the Amalekites slash Amlicites get along so well with the Amulonites. Remember Amlici, I want to be king. I want to be in charge. I don't want to have to work for it. Is there an easy way on earth and in heaven? Universalism, all of those kinds of things. Either way, by the way, there's no need for a savior because there's nothing to be saved from. Now in verse 3, if you thought it was bad to teach Lamanites, 
wild, hardened, ferocious, then it's even worse to teach Amalekites and Amulonites. The Lamanites of themselves were sufficiently hardened, but with the help of Nephite dissenters, they become harder still. They caused the Lamanites to harden their hearts. They caused that they would wax strong in wickedness and abominations. The most convincing anti-Mormons are ex-Mormons, after all. The most zealous enemies of anything tend to be dissenters or apostates from that organization. And yet, that's exactly the kinds of people that Aaron is called to teach. Good luck, brother. Verse 4, he begins to teach them in their synagogues. Synagogues built after the order of the Nehors, because so many of the Amalekites and Amulonites were after that order. See all this stuff kind of coming together? Nehor from Alma 1, Amlesi perhaps from 2 and 3, Amulon that rejected the message of Abinadi when Alma didn't. It's amazing all of these threads coming together. And in 5 through 8, we get to see an interaction, an exchange between Aaron, the servant of God, and these wicked servants of the order of the Nehors. It actually reminds me a lot of the conversation that Zeezrom and Amulek had together. They begin to contend with Aaron and say at the end of verse 5, What are you testifying of? Have you seen an angel? Well, why don't angels appear to us? Aren't we just as good as you? Now to that, Aaron could have said, Yes, I've seen an angel, but he didn't come to me because I was good. He came to me precisely because I wasn't. But he knew I could change. And I am the angel that's been sent to you. Not because you're good, but because you can be. And you need to be called to repent. Verse 6, they shift from some kind of hierarchy. You think you're better than we are. Pride from above meets pride from below, perhaps. To verse 6, how do you know that we have to repent? You say we have to or we'll perish. But do you know the thoughts and intents of our heart? How do you know we have anything to repent of at all? Again, if this is the order of Nehor, then there's no sin. Everyone gets to heaven, no problem. There's no need of repentance. There's no need of a savior. That's the big gun that they're after. How do you know we're not righteous? I mean, we built sanctuaries. We assembled ourselves together to worship God. And then again, clear reference back to what Nehor taught. We do believe that God will save all men. It's interesting how often we push back against truth by claiming to being judged. Oh, you're just judging us. You're condemning us. You think we have to repent of something. Well, we all do. That's an easy assumption for everybody. This is not judgmentalness. This is simple judgment. And I can pass the same judgment of guilty upon myself. That's why I repent. That's why I'm coming to call you to repent. As far as building sanctuaries and as far as worshiping God, is that what you call this? In verse 8, he goes on, We don't believe that you know anything. We don't believe your foolish traditions. That's all it is. It's your tradition. It's just social construction of reality. It's foolish, makes no sense logically. You can't know of these things. There's epistemology again. Specifically, you cannot know of things to come, which is why we can categorically deny anything you've said or anything your fathers have said, because it relies on the possibility of prophecy, and we reject that outright. It's interesting how many skeptics approach scripture or prophets or possible truth with that as their premise. From the get-go, I will reject anything that speaks of prophecy. Ooh, that's going to make this a really tough discussion. We're not going to get very far, since we are still BC saints. And with their premise, they've already determined their conclusion. This is not going to go very well. But Aaron does try. In verse 9, he opens the scriptures unto them. 
Scriptures which they will reject already have. Scriptures concerning the coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, that there could be no redemption for mankind save it were through the death and sufferings of Christ and the atonement of his blood. This goes right in the face of the doctrine of Nehor. This is the order of the Son of God meeting the order of Nehor. One acknowledging sin and the other denying it. One holding out hope through the atonement, the other denying that there's even a need for one. The only hope you have, the only redemption out there, is through the death and sufferings. Sufferings is Gethsemane, death is Calvary. Both are required. That is the atonement of Christ's blood. How do they react in 10? Two interesting extremes happening simultaneously. On the one hand, they're angry with him. And on the other, they begin to mock him. Either way, they're not going to listen. But I do think that's interesting extremes. The anger seems to magnify, maximize things. This is the most horrific thing you could possibly say. Kind of get people up in anger. Stir them up to contention, as we see. And the other side, to mock them, does the opposite. It minimizes. You can shrug it off and laugh at it and go, this is the dumbest, most absurd thing. Reductio ad absurdum, it's called. To reduce to the absurd. Reduction. You see what's happening in either case? Instead of keeping it in the Goldilocks zone, as I like to call it, either inflate it or deflate it. Either maximize it or minimize it. Either get angry about this big deal or laugh off something that's so insignificant that why are we talking about this at all? Either way, we're pushing people out of that middle ground where you can actually take something serious enough to actually give it some thought. Well, 11, he recognizes this is going nowhere. So he leaves, goes somewhere else, but they contend with him there. 12, they're hardened, so he departs out of that land, goes somewhere else, keeps preaching. A few believe the words that they were taught. Well, a little bit success. That doesn't last long, though. 13, they're cast into prison, and the rest flee, and that's where they really start suffering. That's where they're finally delivered by Lamoni and Ammon. And what do they do as soon as they get out? Same as always, verse 15, they go forth again to declare the word. I love how patient and long-suffering Aaron is. Contention, one place. Go somewhere else. Hardened hearts, there. We'll keep trying again. A little bit of belief in this spot. We'll go and keep trying elsewhere. Cast into prison. Finally freed. Keep on going. He never gave up. Verse 16, they go wherever the Spirit leads them. They preach the word of God in every synagogue that they can. Even among the Amalekites. Every assembly of the Lamanites that will give them the time of day. And by so doing... By showing forth that patience and long-suffering and affliction, as they've been told from the very beginning, the Lord began to bless them, insomuch that they brought many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, they did convince many of their sins and of the traditions of their fathers, which were not correct. It's that sin part between God, the Great Spirit, and Christ and His redemption. And yet that's one of the hardest things for some people, especially those like Nehor, like Amulon, like Amlicai, like the early version of Zeezrom, it's hard to acknowledge that there's been sin, which makes it impossible to acknowledge the need for a Savior. Well, with Aaron back up and running, Ammon's mission can continue again as well. And so he goes back with Lamoni. But rather than being his servant, verse 19, that period served its purpose. 
Instead, he asks him to help in 20 and 21 to build synagogues and to keep teaching. Lamoni rejoiced over his people. He taught them many things. He told them that they were a free people, free from the oppressions of his father. 22, free to worship the Lord their God according to their desires. Verse 23, Ammon joins Lamoni in this witness, preaching, teaching all things concerning righteousness, and exhorting them daily with all diligence to give heed to his word and to be zealous for keeping the commandments of God. This is a good missionary doing a lot of good follow-up work with recent converts. The last chapter for today then is chapter 22. Ammon was thus teaching the people of Lamoni continually. None of these brothers seemed to take much of a break in their missionary labors. And Aaron, who we saw in the previous chapter would go wherever the Spirit guided him, now leaves the land of Madoni and is led by the Spirit to the land of Nephi to go to the house of the king over all the land. Now he hasn't met him yet, but he does know a little bit about him because Ammon has said a few things when he freed him from prison. So he goes to the king's palace in verse 2, bows himself to the king and says, Behold, O king, we are the brethren of Ammon, whom thou hast delivered out of prison. I know you weren't there for it, but I will give you the credit since you're the king over all the land. We know you, although you don't know us. Verse 3, Now, O king, if thou wilt spare our lives, we will be thy servants. Maybe he heard about that from Ammon as well. How did you do this? You converted this Lamanite king. Most of his people joined as well. How'd you do this? Well, I, I didn't come with guns blazing as far as sharing the gospel was concerned. I served, and that eventually won the hearts of people that I could then teach. And so here's Aaron taking a page from Ammon's playbook saying, hey, can I be your servant? And the king says to him, I love this, get off your knees. What are you doing? Arise. I will grant unto you your lives, and I will not suffer that ye shall be my servants. I got plenty of those. I will insist that ye shall administer unto me. Like, I don't need servants. I need teachers. You see, Lamoni didn't know he needed a teacher, which is why Ammon began by being his servant. Only then was he ready to teach. But why were they here to begin with? They were there to teach, not just to serve. Both can go hand in hand, but the one was to lead to the other. Well, Lamoni's dad is prepared. He's ready to be taught. I think that's a powerful missionary principle too. I think especially as we start missions or start service in any kind of calling, we look around at other people who have done it really, really well. And we just want to pattern our service or our missions after theirs. Until somehow the Lord reassures us, I already had that kind of missionary. I don't need another. I need you. I need the spiritual gifts that I gave you to come to full fruition. I already have an Ammon. I need an Aaron here. So be an Aaron kind of missionary. No need to be an Ammon one. I remember looking up to the APs that picked me up from the airport so much at the beginning of my mission. They were amazing. I remember one was a convert from South America who joined the church in his early teenage years and then began studying the missionary guide. Seriously, he went to the missionaries and said, yes, you gave me the Book of Mormon. I love the scriptures, but I keep seeing you refer to this missionary guide on how to be missionaries. I, I go on split. He went on splits with the missionaries like every day, practically. And he asked them for a copy of the missionary guide. That's the precursor of Preach My Gospel. And he had been studying that book for like six or seven years before he became a full-time missionary himself. Elder Mendoza was his name. And he was Increíble. 
I remember starting out and just wanting to be like Elder Mendoza until the Lord, in his own sweet ways, reassured me, I already have an Elder Mendoza, and I'm so grateful for him. He's incredible. But what I'm lacking is the Elder Halverson that I called to serve. Be yourself. Be the best version of yourself, but be you. Yes, my name is on your tag. There it is, right? Jesucristo. But guess what else is on there? Halverson. So be Elder Halverson and be the best version that you can. And then he says to Aaron what we hinted at earlier. I have been somewhat troubled in mind because of the generosity and the greatness of the words of thy brother Ammon. He almost killed me, but that's not what struck me. It wasn't his power. It wasn't the near-death experience I had at his hand. It was his generosity and the greatness of his words. It was things that he said. It wasn't Paul's power. It was Paul's doctrine. It wasn't just that Jesus could perform miracles. It's that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. One other question he threw in there. I also want to know why he didn't come. I told him last time I saw him, as I was recovering from my arm injury, I'd love for you to come and teach me. Why didn't he come to do that? And Aaron could say, well, because I did. The message is more important than the messenger either way. But here, verse 4, the Spirit of the Lord hath called him another way. So he's gone back with Lamoni to Ishmael to keep teaching. You see, new converts still need missionaries, not just investigators. We all do. Members need to be strengthened as much as non-members need to be reached. It's all still missionary work. Now, verse 5, the king responds, Okay, you're on to something that that's something else I wanted to talk about anyway. What is this that ye have said concerning the Spirit of the Lord? That's one of the things that troubles me. That's a beautiful question. What is, it that, what is this Spirit that guides you? What is that Spirit that helps you know my thoughts and intents? What is the spirit that makes you different, that always seems to make Nephites different? What is this? What is this source of greater happiness, peace, and rest like we saw from Abraham? Also, verse 6, something else that Ammon said, that if we repent, we'll be saved, and if we don't repent, we won't be. What's, what's that all about, too? You see, if there's repentance, then there must be sin. And sin has always been kind of a fuzzy point with us Lamanites. Got even fuzzier once the Amulonites and the Amalekites came over. Does it matter how we live? Do we need to change things? Must we repent of sin? Now from 7 to 11, it kind of goes back and forth. Preliminary questions, conversations. Aaron asks, well, do you believe there's a God? And the king says, well, the Amalekites say there is. It's more of the heavenly grandfather version. We go from God, but we don't, never got to sin and definitely not onto atonement. But yeah, there's a God. That's, I'm fine with that. I let them build their sanctuaries. You tell me. If you say there's one, I'm good. I'll, I'll believe. We're starting to see some like father, like son. Remember Lamoni was like, I'll believe what you say. Well, here's Lamoni's father doing likewise. That's good news to Aaron. His heart rejoices in eight. And so he, says, he testifies, Assuredly, as thou livest, O king, there is a God. It starts going down the great spirit path that we saw earlier and the creation of heaven and earth. Very similar. Again, Aaron and Ammon must have gone through the same MTC training. And in 11, Lamoni's dad seems to be a similar kind of investigator. I believe 
the great spirit created all things. I desire that you'll tell me more and I will believe thy words. I believe certain things. I want to know more things and I'll believe those things. Faith leading to understanding. Verse 12, the real doctrine begins. Came to pass that when Aaron saw that the king would believe his words, he began from the creation. Again, same first discussion that Ammon had taught. Reading the scriptures under the king, so same source. How God created man after his own image, same principle. That God gave him commandments and that because of transgression, man had fallen. So we go creation, fall, just like Ammon did. Verse 13, Aaron did expound unto him the scriptures from the creation of Adam, laying the fall of man before him and their carnal state, and also the plan of redemption, which was prepared from the foundation of the world through Christ for all whosoever should believe on his name. So you see the, the same message to combat the same kind of base traditions? There is a God. We're good on that. Call him whatever name you want, but there is more than that. There is a creation, but there is a fall. Sin is real, but there is an atonement. Redemption comes through Christ. Christ is the Father's solution to the problem of sin. There is sin. That awakening of conscience that we've seen needs to happen in all of us. We need to see ourselves as less than the dust of the earth. That was the first step for King Benjamin's people too. But then to throw themselves on the mercy of the Lord, which is ever-present to those that repent, whoever you might be, Nephite, Lamanite, and anyone in between. Verse 14, since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. Paul would like that. But the sufferings, there's Gethsemane, and death, there's Calvary, of Christ, atone for their sins. What's our part? Through faith and repentance. God breaks the bands of death. The grave has no victory. The sting of death is swallowed up in the hopes of glory. Aaron expounded all these things unto the king. It's what Ammon taught before him. It's what Alma taught to his people. It's what Abinadi taught to his audience. What King Benjamin taught before that. That is the message of the Book of Mormon. Redemption offered to fallen humanity. All through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The king gets it or at least wants to. And so in verse 15, he asks the question. This is like Acts chapter, what, 2? After Peter has given this incredible message and the Jews that feel pricked in their heart that we have rejected Christ, is it too late for us? Have we missed the boat? So they ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. Engage in the plan of salvation. Allow it to turn to your good. Lamoni's father asks the same thing. What shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? What shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast? I want it gone. I want to cast away my sins, that great verb that we saw last time. I'm recognizing my wickedness, eliminating the gap between belief and behavior, doing it the way the Nehors describe the way the Amulonites teach, by squashing down belief until there is no space. This is all explained in the video from Abinadi's message, Mosiah 11 through 17. Well, the jack-in-the-box just popped back up. You told me about reality, and boy, do I feel the wickedness 
of my spirit. But I want it gone. I want it rooted out of my breast so that the spirit can fill that gap. So I can receive the spirit that I can be filled with joy so that I won't be cast off at the last day. If I can know that, if you can answer that question for me, I will give up all that I possess. I'll forsake my kingdom that I might receive this great joy. My own physical life was only worth half a kingdom, but my spiritual life is worth the whole thing. To that, Aaron would agree, since he gave up a kingdom too, a whole kingdom. Verse 16, Aaron says to him, If thou desirest this thing, if thou wilt bow down before God, yea, if thou wilt repent of all thy sins and will bow down before God and call on his name in faith, believing that ye shall receive, then you will. You'll receive the hope which thou desirest. You see how much of 16 has to do with humility? And he's talking to a king over all the land. How much of it has to do with repentance to a person whose conscience is just starting to come back online? How much of it is faith and belief and principles that he hasn't known before? Well, the king's ready to act. In 17, he bows down before the Lord upon his knees. Well, maybe that's not even low enough. He then prostrates himself upon the earth. Like I said, for a king over all the land, this is probably the lowest he's ever been. The most humble. And he cries mightily saying, and this is one of the most beautiful prayers I think we see in scripture. It is so vulnerable. It's so innocent. It's so childlike. It's so raw and real. He simply says, Oh God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God. And if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me? I love just the complete openness, the sheer vulnerability of God. I don't even know if you're there. I don't know if you're real. It's like picking up a phone and saying hello. I don't even know if anyone's on the other line. But if there is, if there is a God, and if it's you, God, please tell me. Please help me know. That's the kind of humility that brings answers from heaven. He says, I will give away all my sins to know thee, that I may be raised from the dead and be saved at the last day. It's not the kingdom that I needed to offer. It was my sins. That's what God is asking. I will give away all my sins. Not hold on to my favorite few. Just give them up. Let the Lord take them. Stop saying, my transgressions are mine. Just give them away. To know thee. And this is life eternal, Jesus says in his own prayer. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Lamoni's father simply wants to know God. And it's his sins that are keeping him from doing so. Then again, it's giving up those sins that will help him come to know him. At least that's been the experience for me. The times in my life where I feel like I know God best, most personally, most powerfully, most profoundly, 
is when I am giving my sins to him. It's when I'm repenting. When I've lowered myself and humbled myself and admitted to him that I need your help. That's when comfort and courage come, as we saw back in chapter 17. Well, the rest of the story, you can kind of guess. It has followed Lamoni's so beautifully. There's considerable text left in Alma 22, although a big chunk of it is simply geography. Nothing so specific as to nail down a, a certain spot. I'm not one who spends much time or loses much sleep as far as Book of Mormon geography is concerned. There are those who do, and more power to them. I think it's great trying to piece together archaeology or geography or whatever the case may be. There's more of it than our opponents would admit, though not as much of it as any of us would like, probably. But rather than get bogged down in the regions roundabout, the only reason it's even in here is because the king over all the land is sending out a proclamation throughout the land, and then Mormon gets a little sidetracked, perhaps. Or perhaps it's more important than I realize, and I'm missing something. But then we pick back up in Alma 23 with that proclamation. How do we get there, though? At the end of 18, once the king has offered that beautiful, innocent prayer, he falls down, struck as if he's dead. 19, the servants run and tell the queen. She comes and assembles. Servants assemble. People assemble. So far, it seems very parallel to what happened in Lamoni's case. With this big difference, this queen, which we would assume is Lamoni's mother, is a different person than Lamoni's wife. Lamoni's wife allowed days to pass. Hears more about Ammon, goes and seeks his help. This queen is more a woman of action and wants things to happen right now. She sees her husband laid out cold, sees Aaron and the others standing there. They haven't passed out. She assumes incorrectly that they're the cause. Well, I guess in a way that they are. But she thinks that they've killed him. And so she rallies the troops, gets the servants, and the servants are kind of like, oh, we actually saw this. They, they, it's not what you think. And I'm a little nervous about fighting them when they haven't been fighting. There's no, there's no violence here. They beg her in verse 20, don't make us kill him because we can't and they'll end up killing us. She sees their fear in 21. She starts getting afraid. So she gathers the people thinking, well, maybe strength in numbers. Now, this is another one of those times where Aaron needs to be Aaron instead of Ammon. This is not going exactly the way it was in his case. And that's okay. I just need to end things right here. In 22, he sees her determination sees the hardness of the hearts of the people. He fears this is going to lead to even bigger contentions and disturbances, so he just ends it. He puts forth his hand. He raises the king from the earth and says, Stand. He does. He receives his strength. And now we're up and running. The king, in 23, ministers unto them. His whole household, wife included, are converted unto the Lord. He then begins to teach to the multitude. And like I said earlier, sends this proclamation throughout the land so that the word of God can continue spreading forth without obstruction. There are so many powerful principles throughout these great missionary chapters that again, like I said at the beginning, apply to so much more than missionary work alone. Will we remain one another's brethren and sisters in the Lord? Will we place our trust in God so that comfort and courage can come to each of us? Will we serve and teach? Will we gain the hearts of fellow servants? 
Will we care what happens to sheep who are scattered? Will we seek heaven's help and speedily rush after them to help bring them back to the place of water and the pasture of the King of Kings? Will we see interruptions, not as interruptions, but as opportunities to expand the influence of God in other people's lives? Will we give God the chance to work in people, even in people that others think might stink? It is never too late, brothers and sisters. I'm grateful for missionaries. Like Ammon and like Aaron, in their similarities and in their differences. I'm grateful for converts like Lamoni and his father, Lamoni's wife, Lamoni's mother, Abish. I hope you've seen yourself in these stories, learned lessons from them that can be used in your own life. I am grateful for the power of God's message of creation, fall, atonement, because I do believe in God he has made himself known unto me every time I have given up my sins. I do know that there has been a fall, not just of Adam and Eve, but of me. But most importantly, I do believe there has been an atonement and that through the redemption of Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven, as can you. That is his plan of redemption, and it works in each of our lives. May we humble ourselves before him and give him those sins. Coming to know him through that process will make all the difference for all of us. <laughs>